Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 109 for the 2nd 3rd of May 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the fake story of Planet X, Part 9, wherein I'm going to discuss the version of Planet X advocated by Marshall Masters, a listener-requested episode. This is the story of a time in the present, a time of myth and legend, when the ancient tales are petty and cruel, and they will return to plague mankind with suffering. Only one group dared to challenge the disinformation machine, led by a man named Marshall Masters. Masters possesses an intellect the truth movement rarely sees, being a member of Mensa, an intellect surpassed only by the power of his heart to get the word out. He journeyed the internet and late-night radio programs, battling the minions of the evil disinformationists and the all-powerful NASA. You see, in this underworld of conspiracy and mystery and truth, everything you've ever heard is true is a lie, and lies are true. Planet X is coming. Planet X is on a 3,600-year orbit around the Sun. It's a brown dwarf twice as big as Jupiter and has an entire constellation of satellites. Chelyabinsk, that meteor last year that exploded over Russia, yeah, that was flung at us from Planet X. After all, NASA was blindsided by it because it came from the direction of the Sun where NASA doesn't look. We're seeing a huge increase of fireballs and meteors seen across huge areas. Multiple states in the U.S. are seeing these events. It's only very rarely visible from Earth right now, Planet X that is, because it's behind the Sun, where it's been for a while, apparently, since that's how orbits work, somehow. But that's okay. Marshall's team has been able to catch glimpses of it and work out its orbit. It'll be near perihelion soon, the closest approach to the Sun, and it's between that and the ecliptic, even though those are not mutually exclusive terms, that it's in the kill zone. That's when it'll have the most interactions with the sun, causing biblical-scale solar flares. We're going to have to learn how to live underground during the day. And I don't care if the Bible doesn't actually say anything about solar flares, but we'll have to learn how to live under the ground during the day. It'll also cause Edgar Cayce's predicted pole shift just by a few degrees, because it'll lock onto the lithosphere and drag it, moving the crust along with it. That'll cause volcanoes and earthquakes and other bad stuff. Now, don't go thinking that this will be a non-event, like 2003, Nancy Leader, that whole non-event. It's the episode 51. That was just silly. She needed to calm down, look at the facts, and be reasonable. Wait, what's that? I said that based on crop circle formations back in 2011, that all this was going down on December 21st, 2012, the Mayan apocalypse? That due to Planet X back then, the sun was going to unleash hell on Earth? That guacamole was just going to hit the fan then? What are you, one of them? <sighs> okay, where was... Oh, yeah, that's right. This all happened before. Noah's flood was because of Planet X. The, the ancients all knew it, especially the Egyptians. It's right there in the Coburn Bible. It's also in the Christian Bible, especially the newer translations. It's, it's just kind of more hidden, but you have to know how to decipher all of this. I, I did mention that I'm a member of Mensa, right? Planet X is coming. So, so yeah, this all went down thousands of years ago, and it's going to happen again. 3,600-year orbit, remember? NASA's been observing it for years, even decades, but they won't tell anyone yet. They did discover it in 1983 with IRAS. And 
when the guacamole hits the fan, there will still be people who won't believe it. The media will be all like, oh my god. But there will be people who refuse to accept it, refuse to lift the bliss of ignorance, because ignorance is bliss. But me and my team, we've been observing it long enough to pin down its orbit. Now, it's late 2013 and early 2014 that the brown dwarf is going to be in a superior conjunction, when it's on the opposite side of the sun, but inside Earth's orbit. Screw you, I know what those terms mean. I said superior, not inferior conjunction. But it's then, just in that few-month period. But it's a rough estimate, based on the data that we've been looking at, and even though there's no way to calculate an accurate ephemeris due to all the bodies involved, gosh, I, I don't know how they do it with asteroids, but it's definitely going to be there because we've got a good idea of, of where it is now and how long it's going to be there and how long it's going to take to get there and exactly how fast it's going, but these are approximate dates, so it may certainly for sure be there that it, it, it's still hard to set dates, or we, we only have approximate dates, but it's late 2013 to early 2014, and um, yeah, I'm talking about solar storms. So yeah, we've observed it because I back-engineered how cameras work, and I created this technique called camera sensor illumination, which uses gamma to tell you if there's a hot object there, one that's emitting photons, as opposed to being a sundog, because a sundog is all in the camera. It's not a real atmospheric phenomenon where you see photons. <laughs> That'd just be silly. So yeah, this camera sensor illumination, it, it tells me that if you have a real object or if it's just an optical phenomenon or, or not. And I made a YouTube video about it. Now, it's not like all those camera cell phone shots from people have been sending me for years. No, it's not like those. That's all part of the disinformation campaign. They were professionally planted there by people who need to pay their child support. Duh. But they did a really good job of it. Like They have a profile, they have a playbook, all written by the best because they've inoculated the public against Planet X. I know the difference between the average Joe not knowing what he's doing versus outright disinformation. Planet X is coming. It's going to be bad. All these images that are real, not the fake ones of sundogs. Yes, I know what a sundog is. I'm in Mensa. All of these real images let us work out the orbit. It's, it's hard to take these images from the ground because there's more water in the air than there's ever been before. And you think of water as transparent, but it's translucent. Just look at your car windshield when it's raining. So it's translucent. And that, along with all the chemtrails that they're spraying, means that you have to get up really high to image this thing. And we've gotten photos of it, and those photos certainly weren't of stars or sundogs, because my technique that I put up on YouTube but seemed to have taken down just a few months later, it proves that these were emitting photons. So they're, they're real. You just adjust the gamma. But you really have to be careful about the disinformation on YouTube. All the targeted Wolfpack disinformation attack sites, all those too. But if you really have the goods, don't label your videos with inflammatory titles like Debunk This, Skeptics, or Debunk This, Bitches. Ask yourself if you're a Planet X soldier for truth, and go from there. Lead from your heart chakra. Now, yes, professional astronomers all know about this. There was a slow trickle of information that started with Velikovsky, but the astronomer Robert Harrington at the U.S. Naval Observatory, he came out and said that it was real, and he even appeared in a documentary with Zechariah Sitchin, and then shortly thereafter died mysteriously of this weird, supposedly fact-acting cancer. Even his wife says that this was an unnatural death. Now, ever since then, the Planet X information books and with all that stuff, 
it's it's kind of died off because people are scared of being killed. Yeah, my book, Planet X Forecast and 2012 Survival Guide, sure, that's, that's still valid. 2012 was just a wake-up call. It's still all going to happen. You know, some people say the real 2012 was actually December 16th, 2013. 2012 was the warm-up band. 2013 is the headline act. Okay, on the for sure meter, Marshall, how sure are you that this is all going to come down? 100%. Wow. Well, I hope that you folks found that at least mildly entertaining. I thought that it was a better way to present the arguments of Marshall Masters and to give a simple rundown of his claims. I've listened to a few hours of his arguments over the years. I've watched some of his videos. I've skimmed through the publicly available portions of his books that are available on Amazon. And I wrote down lots of quotes. Several of the lines that I spoke were actually direct quotes from him. And he really does have the nerve to keep spouting this stuff even after he said all of it would happen in 2012 and 2013, and it didn't. But more on that in a little bit. This episode is part 9 of the Fake Story of Planet X series, meaning that there's still a little more nuance to the pseudoscience that's out there about Planet X. Marshall Masters' version, if you got anything else out of my intro rant, is full of conspiracy. Listener Mike Bowler of the A Skeptic's Guide to Conspiracy podcast had asked me, what would the universe look like if the crazies were right? What would it take to have a Planet X work, and what would we see? He sent me that on April 29th, and this was already planned for May 11th or 12th, as it so happens. So I told him to stay tuned. And that's what the world would have to look like for Planet X to be true. It would have to be a worldwide conspiracy where things work a certain way when they really don't. For example, there's a 3,600-year orbiting planet. That's the one of Sitchin. And that's the version that Marshall clearly espouses. I debunked that way back in episodes 23 and also 95. A 3,600-year orbiting planet simply doesn't work because of the stability of the asteroid belt, among many other things, uh, besides the fact that we would see it. Like, there would also be records from the last time that a whole friggin' planet swung by through the inner solar system, especially one that's a star. Although, Masters isn't particularly clear on what he means by a star. In one interview, he said that the sun has a binary companion, since 90% of the stars in the galaxy do when it's actually probably about 60%. But in another interview, he said that it's a brown dwarf, which tends to not count quite as much as a companion star, but in the same interview, he said that this brown dwarf is twice as large as Jupiter, which certainly isn't a star, and most wouldn't even think of calling it a brown dwarf. It's a planet. Most people, well, at least the last number I heard was that you kind of have a brown dwarf planet separation at about 13 times the mass of Jupiter. He also says that Planet X is really hard to observe, and that you have to observe it above most of the atmosphere, while at the same time accepting random Joe's images and videos taken with a cheap camera from a moving car on the ground as evidence. And he also says that while he has enough observations to calculate the orbit such that he knows when superior conjunction is, when it's on the opposite side from the, of the Sun from Earth, not between Earth and the Sun, because that would be inferior conjunction, he can only give you a rough estimate of when it'll actually be in a particular location because there are apparently so many objects orbiting it that those objects make it impossible to predict the orbit. 
which is baloney because you just need three observations and then you can model an orbit because the sun is what counts in the solar system because that's what has over 99% of the mass. Even if you had another object two times the size of Jupiter, over 99% of the mass of the solar system would still be in the sun. But observations are hard because apparently planet X is right where the sun is, except that doesn't make sense either. Yes, a planetary body can certainly be near the sun as seen from Earth, but unless it's like Mercury and it just orbits a few tens of millions of miles or kilometers from the sun over and over and over again, it would move otherwise. It can't just sit there for months or years on end, and yet we've been hearing from masters and from other Planet X people that the reason you can't see it very well is because it's close to the sun in our sky for years. And it doesn't move from there, apparently, which really is impossible for any object that obeys basic laws of gravity and motion and would be a planet on a 3,600-year elliptical orbit. If nothing else, we move. So either it has to be at exactly where Earth is, but opposite the Sun, or something like Mercury. And yet, Master's version is that the closest that it gets to the Sun is something like two times the distance between Earth and the Sun. So... It, it just doesn't make any sense. And not only that, we see Mercury. We've known that it's existed since before written records were kept, yet somehow an object that's either a star or a brown dwarf or a planet that's twice as big as Jupiter isn't seen by anyone but him and his group or random people on YouTube. But if you want to see it, apparently you can look near the sun and it'll be there. According to him in an interview in September of last year, you can look either soon before sunrise or soon after sunset. Except even that doesn't make sense. If it's off to the eastern side of the sun, then it would be visible during the morning before sunrise. If it's off to the western side of the sun, then it would be visible during the evening before sunset. If it's pretty much sort of off to the south or north side of the sun, then you're not going to be able to see it because it would be setting or rising right with the sun. And if it's right near the sun, then it would be too faint relative to the sun to see it, or the sun would be too bright. But again, it would move. You really can't have it both ways. I mean, Venus is the morning or the evening star. It can't be both at the same time. But it's just not physically possible. Unless... Somehow, this magic object moves from one side of the sun to the other over the course of 12 hours, but just from your particular vantage point on Earth. But it never goes too far from the sun such that normal people who know what they're doing can actually see it. For all of those reasons, I really don't know why people still take them seriously. And even though I know that Coast to Coast AM isn't necessarily a bastion of common sense or science or education, even they shouldn't be buying into this story because of his massive fail in 2012. I played these clips of him in episode 57 on the Solar Flare Doom for 2012. Timing-wise, uh, according to the Avebury 2008 formation, which I document in Crossing the Cusp, uh, we're going to see Planet X in December 2012. And this is also the period of the solar maximum when the sun is forecasted to be its most violent. Now, there are really serious alerts out there. You know, back in 2008, Dr. Mishu Kaku, we saw him on Fox, and the news uh, entertainer at, 
that point just blew him off, just said it was uh, another millennium bug scare and didn't take it seriously. And it was pretty humiliating for uh, Kaku. But uh, still the same, the message is there, Academy of Sciences, uh, you hear voices at NASA, and what they're saying is that we're going to see some really intense solar activity, sufficient enough that it could take out large swaths of our telecommunications and power grids. Uh, it could really be, uh, we could have very serious solar storms. And this times with, you know, what we're seeing as the point at which we will first observe this object with the naked eye. So when is the return date for Planet X as you have calculated it? Well, according to the Avebury 2008 formation, it's in early December that we will see it of 2012. And this formation is, uh, I studied it for two years, and it, because it's very, very unique, very, very large. Uh, this was uh, a crop circle formation that appeared in two phases and is approximately the size of nearly four soccer fields. The big disc that looks like this oversized sun, if you were to see a picture of that first formation that formed mm-hmm. earlier. Okay. It's smaller. And what is that? What happened when it overlaid, it expanded that circle. So, what does that uh, tell you? What it's doing is it's saying when this time comes, you're going to have incredibly violent solar storms. And clearly, in hindsight, he was wrong. He made great efforts in that interview from April 10th, 2011, to emphasize that he's in Mensa. He has an incredibly high IQ. And then he went on to interpret crop circles. Probably it's clear by this point I don't consider reliable evidence of crop circles to be anything other than general gullibility. But as I said, he predicted bad stuff would happen in 2012 and 2013 in his book, The 2012 Cataclysm Survival Thing. It didn't. He's been predicting this solar stuff and is still going at it two years after its expiration date. And when he was saying this last summer and autumn, at least in the northern hemisphere as the seasons go, he was predicting that all of this bad stuff would happen starting in the winter of 2013 to 2014. I'm recording this in mid-May of 2014. I admit that I'm about six days behind on my news cycle reading, but so far as I'm aware, no massive volcanoes or solar storms or earthquakes out of the ordinary have happened. Though he also said in the same interview that it would be really bad starting in 2015. I'm not sure how he gets two different dates in the same interview, but he does claim that, so I guess he might be on Coast to Coast again throughout the year as we lead up to 2015. But it's all, as Richard Hoagland might put it, fear porn. He's saying a pole shift will happen, a geographic one. See episodes 21 and 22 for more on that. He says a massive solar storm will hit, but he said that would happen 16 months ago also. Somehow he gets away without ever being held to previous predictions, and there comes a point where you really just need to stop listening to the guy. The fact that he wrote a book called Planet X Forecast and 2012 Survival Guide and is still being taken seriously baffles me. Here's a quote from his book. In the context of a post-historic world, the global pains from 2012 will be far greater than those of the Black Death. Or another quote is, Planet X will appear as a second sun in the sky in 2012, but by mid-2009, 
it will be clearly visible at night as a big reddish object to those living in the southern hemisphere. The predictions in his book about a darkened atmosphere due to volcanic nuclear winter, massive earthquakes of greater than magnitude 9 occurring all throughout the world in rapid succession, electronic systems not surviving, maybe the Yellowstone supervolcano going off, all of those things he wrote about happening in 2012 and 2013 in his book from mid-2007. He's still saying the same stuff today, just the time has shifted. And yet, no one seems to have held him accountable, at least in his interviews. In fact, his book is still getting some four- and five-star reviews on Amazon as recently as the middle of 2013, I'm guessing in response to his appearance on Coast to Coast. I realize that I may sound a bit more frustrated, glib, or flippant in this episode than usual, but sometimes the ridiculous amount of credulity out there simply bugs me. It's really kind of ridiculous that he still has an audience, that he still believed, and that people take Marshall Masters and his Yao books, that's Y-O-W, Your Own World, they take his group in any way, shape, or form seriously. I, I don't understand it. He still has an audience, and I'm sure that I would now be considered a disinformation person. I'm following some sort of script. I mean, yes, I, I did write this episode out. I am reading from a script that I'm following some familiar pattern and that he's able to see through this all with his immense intellect and discerning abilities. After all, he is a member of Mensa. By the way, I don't mean anything negative about being in Mensa, because I do know that I have at least a few listeners who are in Mensa. I meant it more that he uses it as an argument from authority, as if saying, I'm in Mensa, therefore everything I say is right. Clearly, that is a bad use of, I'm in Mensa. Anyway, with that said, there is a new news segment this episode. It comes from Flip from the blog. It's out of ABC, where A is Australia, not the American Broadcasting Corporation. The title is First Solar Sibling Discovered, reporting on news in a press release with APJ, the astronomer's abbreviation for the Astrophysical Journal. I've linked up to the paper in the show notes. The article relates very remotely to episode 91, the idea of the sun having a binary companion, and I guess in hindsight a little bit with this episode as well. The thesis of the new paper is that the authors think that they found a star about 110 light-years away that was born with the sun nearly 5 billion years ago. Born with, as in, it was in the same nebula, not that it's a binary companion. The argument is both a dynamic and a chemical one. First, the researchers took a catalog of stars from other people who have searched for stars and, based on their motions, determined that it's at least somewhat possible that they and the Sun were born together, the same nebula at roughly the same time. Those would be stars that kinda sort of move through the galaxy the way we do. Second, from that catalog, the researchers gathered high-resolution spectra so that they could examine the chemistry. They looked at the ratios of various elements to other ones, like titanium and chromium relative to iron. And they then compared those relative elemental abundances to the abundance of the ones in the sun. Only two of the 30 stars they looked at actually compared really well. 
The third step was that of those two stars, they used better dynamical models to figure out if the orbital parameters that we observe today, when worked backwards, make them a candidate for having formed with the Sun given what we know about our own motion through the galaxy and the various gravitational pulls throughout it. Only one of those two stars did, and that's what they reported in the study. My own views are skeptical, but I don't model gravitational or galactic dynamics, and I don't model stellar chemistry, or I don't even observe stellar chemistry. I think the chemistry argument is probably better than the dynamic one, because stars do tend to vary significantly in these amounts of trace elements, but one would think that stars born out of the same nebula, which is more likely to be homogeneous than one nebula compared with another, that they would probably have similar chemical makeups, like you and a sibling would have more DNA in common than you and some random person from another continent. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it's going to be a lot closer. But I also think that it's hard to know what kinds of dynamics have affected a star orbiting a galaxy for over 4.5 billion years, which at our distance from the center means that we've gone around probably about 20 times. A chance close encounter with another large star could completely change the orbit. But we'll see what the experts in this field say once the paper starts to get more attention. Uh, when I recorded this episode, the paper was still in press, so it hadn't officially been released yet. In terms of announcements for this episode, I'm going to be on the Above Top Secret Forum's ATS Live internet radio broadcast this coming Saturday, May 17th. Uh, I think it's in the evening, but I will be posting links to that to the Twitter and Facebook page for this podcast as the date gets closer. Hopefully, I'll be able to record it and post it or a link to the recording afterwards. Also, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. Astro Stew, that's D-R Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. And by the way, Stew is S-T-U, not S-T-E-W. S-T-E-W-A-R-T is a last name, not a first name, except for the Stuarts from England, but that's a different issue. So that wraps up this topic for the 109th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time, even though this was one of my honor episodes. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on my blog post for the episode, or a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can also tweet me. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I'm perpetually behind in responding. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you're old school and don't use iTunes or other things, just tell other people about it. And, uh, you know, spread the love. 